Colossians 1, 1 to 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And give and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of the light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, thanks again uh, for having me here this weekend. Um, I already sense that it's going to be a good one. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to think more about that branding on my forehead thing. Uh, Keep your Bibles open there at uh, Colossians. We're going to be spending all our time this weekend in this great letter. Uh, I I just love uh, Colossians. I think it is a magnificent book, uh, so helpful for our faith. I'm going to pray uh, now as we kick off. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chance to gather together as your people around your word to hear about your son. Shape us by your gospel we pray uh, for your glory's sake and for your son's honour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper says this. He says, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if you've had, uh, well, what experiences you've had of, of, of being surrounded by the majesty of God's creation. I spoke in my interview about my boat. I love going out on my boat. But you really don't have to go out far before you are humbled by the ocean. Uh, I love being out there. I love having the, the cliffs towering over me. Uh, it, is, it would be so stupid of me in that moment to think, how wonderful am I? Uh, these cliffs humble me. And, uh, and, and, and I think this quote from Piper is, is excellent. Contemplating your own greatness is pathological. In the presence of mind-blowing majesty, uh, self-glorification really has no place, does it? Uh, in times like that, you're much better off just to let the moment humble you and teach you and, and grow you. And I think as we come into Colossians, uh, this letter by Paul and Timothy, I think it's a lot like that because in this letter we're presented with the mind-blowing majesty of Christ. And as his majesty confronts us, we ought to let it change us. Jesus has no substitute and Jesus needs no supplement. Nothing can better Jesus. That is the big point of this letter. That's what Paul really wants to press home as he writes to the Colossians. And really, that's what I hope uh, you guys will walk away with uh, from this weekend. Just an, a, a deep and life-changing satisfaction in the majesty of, of Jesus, your saviour. And, and one that, that drives you to serve him more wholeheartedly every day of your life. That, that's what I'm hoping for. Don't, don't walk away from this weekend unchanged by Christ's majesty. And so with that said, let's, uh, let's turn to Colossians 1. I've, I've titled this first talk, The Majesty of Christ in a Hopeless World. A few years ago uh, now, uh, my family and I decided to visit uh, St Thomas's Anglican Church at North Sydney. Uh, there, just one Sunday, we had the morning off our own church and we thought, yeah, let's go up to St Thomas's. We'd never been there before, it was just a normal Sunday. But as we, as we stepped into the church that day, the lady that was on welcoming, she, she leaned in to us and she said, sort of quietly, a little bit nervously, are you here for the vice president's visit? <laughs> and I was like, what? And she goes, are you here for the vice president? Totally unbeknownst to us, the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, was visiting St Thomas's Church that morning. That did explain why, as we were walking up the street, there was heaps of helicopters flying overhead and why there was a lot of black cars and a big security detail down each other. That probably explained that. Um, but I was, we were totally amazed. And uh, as it turned out, we just, we just walked in. We weren't there for that. We just wanted to go to church. Anyway, we sat down in the pews and, wouldn't you know it, the next people to walk in to church were the Pences, and they just happened to be seated just behind us. I was like, oh, wow, this is extraordinary. So I'm sitting there quite nervous. Am I allowed to get my phone out at this point? What am I allowed to do? Anyway, uh, the service just went on as normal, and, um, and we had the kids' spot, and then a time came in the service for the kids to go out, and, of course, what's normally said in a church service at that point? Just turn to those around you and say hello. And so that's what we did. Uh, at that time, that was when uh, Susie was still alive. And uh, for those, if you knew Susie, you knew that she wasn't backward in coming forward. And she turned around and put her hand out and said, hi, we're the Millers. 
and, uh, and so we, we met the fences. Anyway, it was, this, <laughs> it was an extraordinary moment. Um, but it was one of these moments where we just realised we'd stepped into something really significant. We, we didn't even realise that that was happening. Now, I reckon as we enter into Colossians, it's a little bit like that. Right from the outset, uh, you realise that you've stepped into something really significant. Take a look at verse 1 there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Paul is an apostle. An apostle of Christ Jesus. He has been sent by Christ. He is a delegate of Christ. And, and what this means is that he carries the words of Christ and he carries the authority of Christ. This is no small title uh, for him to bear, an apostle. But you see, even more than that, this, this, this title that he has, this apostleship, it, it has the backing of nothing less than the eternal will of God. He is an apostle by the will of God. And God's will here, I think, is something we need to just, just dwell on very briefly because it's not just referring to this choice of Paul. Uh, you know, sometimes we can think about God's will in terms of what's his will for my life. Should I take this job or that job? Or should I marry this person or that person? That, that's, not, that's not what the will of God is referring to here. The, what, what, what this is referring to is the totality of God's eternal plans and purposes. And in particular, this will of God refers to how Christ and how the proclamation of Christ has always been the centrepiece of God's plans for the world. And so these words of Paul that we're going to encounter in this letter, the gospel words of the apostle, they carry eternal weight. Through these words, God brings us up close and personal with his eternal plans and purposes in Christ. And through these words... God shows how you and I can be grafted into those plans. The gospel Paul proclaims, it, it unveils this eternal landscape and it lays it all out before us. That's what's on stake. And he's inviting you to stop and stare at the majesty of this landscape. And so we've stepped into something really significant, just in, in verse 1. And where Paul goes next is that this is all a work of the gospel. It's all a work of the gospel. And it's really this work of the gospel that Paul zeroes in on in this first chapter of Colossians. And, and as we work through this first chapter, I hope you'll see how vital this is to fueling your life together as a church. Uh, there's two parts. I've, seen it, I've, I've put it in your outlines there. We're going to look at it in two parts, the evidence of the gospel's work in verses 3 to 14 and then the essence of the gospel's work in verses 15 to 23. So let's look first of all at, uh, at the evidence of the gospel's work in, in this prayer of Paul's in verses 3 to 14. True to style, uh, Paul shares with the Colossians how he's been praying for them uh, and it's a super example of Christian encouragement, I think. Uh, he doesn't just uh, say that I've been praying for you. He actually spells out the content of his prayer. This is what I've been praying for you. And it is the work of the gospel that dominates the content of his prayer. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, the work of the gospel is comprehensive. It is consistent. And he prays that it will continue in their lives. That's what we see 
in this prayer. So let's, let's think about each of these things in turn, the, the comprehensive work of the gospel. It, it's comprehensive in the way that it has transformed the lives of these Colossians, these people. Have a look, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Paul and Timothy never actually met the Colossians. Uh, They had no um, personal interaction with them face to face, but this fellow Epaphras, who was their co-worker, uh, he had actually told Paul and Timothy how the Colossians had entrusted themselves to Jesus, how the message of the gospel had come to them and it had caused them to have faith. Uh, and so Paul and Timothy have heard about their faith. But their faith was not just sort of some superficial thing. It, it was a genuine faith. It was accompanied by this outward-looking commitment to all of God's people, love. Uh, that's what he says here. The question is, what fueled such a comprehensive transformation in the lives of these people? Well, verse 5, take a look at it there. He says, we've heard about your faith and love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. You see, the gospel has been at work in these people by bringing its message of eternal heavenly hope to the hearts and to the ears of these people. And this is really the goal of evangelism, isn't it? Helping people to hear the gospel. Yes, evangelism is telling people the gospel, but it's also helping them to hear it. Uh, This wonderful message of hope. I actually think it's quite a pleasant way to start a gospel conversation with someone. Have you heard about the hope Jesus offers people? Um, You can start a gospel conversation by saying, can I tell you about the hope that Jesus offers? But another way to do it is, have you ever heard about the hope Jesus offers people? We want people to hear about this hope. And the Colossians had heard it and their lives had been transformed by it. Because this hope, it wasn't wishful thinking. Uh, It was sure, it was certain. It was stored up for them in heaven. And it was built on this solid foundation of truth, the true message of the gospel. So it's not based on some man-made fabrication or, or, or some philosophy. The gospel had done a comprehensive work in the lives of the Colossians. But the thing was, it wasn't an isolated work. And Paul wanted the Colossians to know that what had happened to them was actually happening everywhere. In all the world. The work of the gospel was consistent across the world. Verse 6, in this same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in all the world. And I think one of the things I love about this verse is just, just notice how Paul says, Yeah, what is it that's bearing the fruit? It's the gospel. It's not Paul, it's not Timothy, it's not Epaphras. I mean, yes, they are workers of the gospel, but Paul wants them to understand that it is this message of Christ, the hope, the gospel itself, that is bearing fruit in the world. Just as it has among you since the day you heard it 
and came to truly appreciate God's grace. And see, this is the thing. The work of the gospel, it's all God's work. It's all a work of his grace. It's his gift to his people. And yes, God does use people like Paul and Timothy and Epaphras and and he uses people like you as, as channels for that gospel, faithful ministers of Christ. But it is God who works by his spirit as the gospel is proclaimed to bring about comprehensive and consistent change in all the world. Gospel proclamation is how God brings faith and love to life. And it is that work of the gospel that Paul prays will continue in the life of these people. For this reason, he says, verse 9, Since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I I love this prayer of, of Paul's. I love all Paul's prayers, but this one is just so rich and it is so complex and it's so beautiful. Um, but I want you to notice how it all begins with this reference again to God's will. Uh, the will of God. We'll see that come up a lot through this letter. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so I point this out because you can see here that what, what Paul is praying for is very much aligned to his role as an apostle by the will of God. He's actually praying that these people would become increasingly aware of Christ's centrality in all of God's eternal plans and purposes. This, this is what his prayer is getting at. This is what he wants them to grow in. And so at its heart, this is a prayer that they would know just how supreme Christ really is. Now, of course, no one can know that fully. No one can really appreciate the full majesty of Jesus. God's eternal will in Christ is massive, much bigger than any of our minds can, can, can comprehend, really. But that's the very point, isn't it? Because this is a, a prayer that we could pray every day for the rest of our lives and still look forward to it being satisfied tomorrow. This is, like, this is an eternal prayer. And I want you to notice also how this knowledge of God's will, how it's connected to all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It, it's not just facts. He, he's... He's not just praying that they would have facts. He's he's praying that they would have deep insight, spiritual wisdom and understanding. He he prays that this knowledge that they would would get, that it would have a profound bearing on how they think about life in its totality. A wisdom in the Bible, uh, as we read through the the Old Testament, we hear a lot about wisdom, but, but wisdom in the Bible is often associated with Understanding how things work in God's ordering of the world. Um, Dan Wu, a lecturer at Moore College, he's done a lot of work on the Proverbs, a lot of research in the Proverbs, and he defines wisdom as understanding how your world works 
and how to live in it for your joy and success. It's, it's kind of understanding the mechanics of creation. Uh, this, this is wisdom. Everything fits uh, in God's ordering of things. And so, and so that's, what, that's what wisdom is. And that's kind of what Paul is, is praying for here. Uh, and so what he's praying for, he's actually praying for a radically different lens uh, for these people to be viewing life through. Uh, it's, a, it's a lens that by rights belongs to God, but it is a lens that by grace becomes ours through knowing Christ. And the more we, we focus on Christ, the more that we understand Christ, the more we look at life through that lens, the more we will understand about the totality of life. And this is really what he's, what he's trying to help us to see, what he's praying for. Uh, the way that knowing Jesus gives us insight into all things. And so this prayer, it, it's, it's not just a pie in the sky when you die sort of prayer. It, it's actually profoundly practical for everyday life. It's actually profoundly practical for the way that we walk in our Christian life. And that will go, we'll, we'll see that uh, throughout this letter. And it's certainly why Paul prays that the knowledge that God gives them would, to, would lead to living in a way that is worthy of the Lord. Uh, living in a way that reflects the Lord's eternal worth. Uh, that, that's what he's getting at there. But what does a life like that look like? Well... It's going to be one that bears the marks of kindness, love, growth in faith. It's a life that will be characterised by endurance and patience as we wait. And, and it will be a life that is strengthened by the knowledge of what we're waiting for. It's not a life seeking prosperity and comfort here and now. It's endurance, it's patience. Recognising that true life is to be found in God's eternal kingdom, not in the things of this world. And so this, this life that he's praying for, it's a life that is truly glad, truly content, truly thankful for what God has secured for us in Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has written us into his will. He's qualified us for his inheritance. He's declared us to be his holy people, his special people, set-apart people. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, verse 13. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. That's, that's who we are. That's where we are. We're secure. We are his. We are saved. We are in, <laughs> redeemed, forgiven. God has done all of this for us. And that's why thankfulness should be one of our defining traits as Christians. Thankfulness. It's a theme that Paul will return to over and over again in, in this letter. And, and I, want you to, I want you to think about thankfulness. And I want you to be thankful. I recently heard this story from a school chaplain... It, it sort of blew my mind a bit. 
um, they'd been teaching about thankfulness uh, to a bunch of girls. I think they were in year, either year six or year seven. I think it was year seven. So they'd been teaching about thankfulness to these year seven kids and they asked, why do you think thankfulness is important? Anyway, these year seven kids paused and they thought for a while, hmm, why is thankfulness important? Then one kid put up their hand and said, I think it's important to be thankful because if we're not thankful, that's plagiarism. <laughs> but I think that's awesome. You know, kids all the time are being told don't plagiarise because that's attributing, uh, that's not attributing uh, credit where credit is due, right? If we're not thankful, we are not attributing credit where credit's due. Uh, it is plagiarism not to be thankful. Thank you, Year 7 girl. Anyway, that's Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer for the gospel to continue to be at work in and on the Colossians. question is, though, what is the key to making sure people grow in the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How are we going to make that happen? Think about your own life, your own life personally, but also your life together as a church. What, what is the key for making this happen? Well, for Paul, it's just one thing. A grander vision of Jesus. A grander vision of Jesus. The key to growing as Christians is to grow your vision of Jesus. I played rugby for many years um, and no matter what level of rugby I played, whether it was at school or under 21s or grade, all through my rugby career, the one thing that the coaches used to always say to us is, it's all about the ball. That was their number one piece of advice. It's all about the ball. And I remember there was times before a game that we'd, we'd huddle up, you know, man-cuddling, doing what rugby players do. And the coaches would sometimes say nothing to us. They would just walk in with the ball and put it in the middle of our circle and we'd just stare at it. <laughs> think of however you want to think about that. But the point is that it's all about the ball. It's all about the ball. And we, they wanted to get us focused on that. If you don't have the ball, you're not going to win the game. But if you do have it, you're not going to lose. And as you guys know, Christianity is all about Jesus. And it's... At its heart, at its heart, the work of the gospel derives all its power from who he is. And if you want to grow in your knowledge of God's will... You can't do any better than to have his majesty fill your every horizon. He needs to be at the centre of your huddle. And I take it that's why you read the Bible every week at church. And I take it why Jesus' name is proclaimed every week at church. He's got to be at the centre of your huddle. And that's exactly why Paul takes this letter where he does. I think his, his first step after he prays is to present us with this just mind-blowing portrait of Jesus. And it really doesn't matter what stage of faith you're in, whether you're floundering in your faith at the moment, whether you're flourishing in your faith, or whether you're just finding your way in your faith at the moment. It, it just doesn't matter where you're at at the moment. These verses are intended to captivate your attention. 
And they're, they're intended to captivate your wonder. And they're intended to captivate your affection. That's what the point of this section really is. Because all that God has done for us has been done in and through his son, who, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Jesus sits at the centre of our faith because he sits at the centre of God's purposes in creation. He is the image of God himself. You might remember back in Genesis 1, we learn how God created all mankind in his image and, and you and I still bear that image. But because of sin, that image is corrupted and, and distorted. But Jesus, God's son, he is perfect. Exactly what God intended for mankind to be. He is the image of the invisible God. And because of who he is, everything derives its existence and worth from him, verse 16, everything was created by him. Not some things, all things. The things we see, the things we don't see, things above, things below, things that honour him, even the things that don't honour him. Nothing exists apart from Christ. And even the most powerful things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever power they have, it all sits under the power of Jesus. Nothing can surpass him. Nothing. Because all things belong to him. All things have been created through him and for him. And so you can see Christ has authority over all things. But you see his authority is also for all things. Verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I think this notion of before all things, I don't think that actually means he, he predates everything, uh, although I think that's true. I don't, I don't think that's exactly the idea that's going on here. I think the idea here is that he is, he is behind all things, kind of orchestrating the connections between all things. That's what I think this is referring to. Because by him all things hold together. All the strings and all the threads of existence are in Jesus' hands. And so while he does have authority over all things individually and he made all the different parts, he also holds authority over bringing all those things together and weaving them into the overall tapestry of of this thing we call life. You see, this is where I think things get really surprising in this chapter, because quite surprisingly, all of Christ's creative sovereignty, it finds unique expression and it informs the way where to understand this really extraordinary thing that we call church. Verse 18, he's also the head of the body, the church. As a gathering of God's people, the church brings people from all cultures and from all walks of life together, and it offers us a unique but unified identity under Jesus' headship. And it really doesn't matter what culture you come from, 
what walk of life you come from, the reality is that death is common to us all. We breathe the same air, we tread the same ground, we require the same food and water, and we all share the same fate of living under this same shadow of death. This is common to mankind. But you see, as the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, Christ offers new hope to all of humanity. And it is a hope that rests on his defeat of death. And the church, people like you and me, who have entrusted themselves to Jesus as their head, and who sit under the hope of Christ's life-giving power, we embody that hope. We embody that resurrection hope as a church. And so Jesus has supremacy, first place, over everything. And we have this unique opportunity as the church to be wonderful expressions of the risen Lord Jesus. And so don't forget that, church. One of the things we need to remember too is that this far-reaching, mind-blowing, breathtaking majesty of Jesus, it all lines up with God's good purposes and good pleasure. For God was pleased. God was pleased. It brought him pleasure to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Jesus is at the centre of everything because, because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And because of that, Jesus deserves the place at the centre of your life. And he deserves the place at the centre of your church. And when that happens, when Jesus is in the centre of your huddle, God is pleased. God is pleased. But there's one last important thing to note uh, from this section, because while Jesus is the ultimate purpose of all things, and he's where all things are heading, he's also the means by which these purposes are achieved. Because it was through Christ that God planned to correct a fundamental corruption that runs through all things. We know that this system of life that we occupy is not right. We sense it every day in our suffering, in the world's suffering. There is something not right. There is a corruption that runs through all things. But you see, through him, through Christ, verse 20, God's good pleasure was to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace. Because of sin, things are not at peace. They're a mess. There is hostility between God and man. There is hostility between man and man. And we see it all around us every day. Life as it is, without the sun, is characterised by disharmony. And frankly, the, the magnitude of this hostility that exists between God and man, it can only really be understood 
when we see what it took to turn the situation around. Because did you notice that the peace that the son achieves, it is through his blood. His blood shed on the cross. Can, can you see how stunning and how shocking this is? Typically, a king who had this sort of majesty and who had this sort of command and who had this sort of power over all things, typically a king like that, he would achieve peace through the blood of his sword. It would be his enemy's blood that would be the proof that peace has been achieved. Think of the context, the Roman context. Pax Romana, how did the Romans achieve peace? By killing their enemies. That's how they did it. That's how they achieved peace. How does this God achieve peace? By shedding his own blood. There's the evidence that peace and reconciliation has been achieved. The one who authored life gave his life on a filthy Roman cross to bring life and to restore life. That's what he did. You see, in, in, and in the son's death, that, that sin has been completely destroyed. And in sin's destruction, a pathway to peace and a pathway to true life has been paved. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, all at his expense. All at his expense. And friends, this is what gives the work of the gospel its power. The work of the son, the perfect son, on our behalf. And God works his will into our lives by working his son into our hearts through the message of the gospel. And verses 21 to 23 sum it up for us well. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The work of the gospel, friends, will you let it work on you? Will you let this extraordinary hope transform your life? And will you let the majestic sun fill your every horizon? We're going to be thinking a lot more about this this weekend, but for now, let me pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the majesty of your son. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, in whom all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Father, we thank you that Jesus is before all things and that in him all things hold together. Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh understanding of the majesty of Jesus. We pray that we, pray that we would examine our own lives, uh, consider those areas that uh, Jesus uh, does not yet rule those areas of our life where we 
shut him out. I pray that his majesty would fill those areas, Father. Thank you for his goodness. Thank you for his perfection. Thank you for his willingness to give himself for us. And we thank you so much for the peace that he has achieved. And we pray that as we consider that this weekend, we would grow in our knowledge and our love for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.